0: Alyssa Rosenbaum was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, in 1905. She was the daughter of a Jewish couple of relative privilege. Her father was a pharmacist, and she so she had the opportunity to be well educated at an early age. And she really took to it. She enjoyed school. She was good at it. Um, but at the age of 12, Alyssa also had a very formative experience. She was in Russia. In 1917, her father's shop was suddenly seized by Bolshevik soldiers. The family was forced to relocate to Crimea. They lived there in utter poverty. Seeing this all play out, understandably, affected young Alyssa. She developed strong feelings towards what she saw as government intrusion into individual livelihood. So eventually, Alyssa was able to attend university to study screenwriting in Russia. Uh, She also had a significant interest in philosophy, which she pursued in college. And then at 21 years of age, Alyssa was granted a visa to visit relatives in the United States. Once there, she was confident she would not return to Russia. She moved to Los Angeles, where she tried to break into the movie industry. And she did have a bit of success in film production. She actually wrote two plays that were produced on Broadway. But the success for which she'd be known for came with the publishing of her first major novel in the 1940s. It was published under the pen name she had by then adopted and would forever be known. Anyone have a guess as to what it is? That's right. Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. The book that made her a literary star was called The Fountainhead. Later would come her magnum opus, Atlas Shrugged. Now, admittedly, I've never personally read one of Ayn Rand's novels, but I'm aware they're a favorite of many, particularly teenage boys. And through the decades since uh, her books were first published in the 1940s and 1950s, Rand has come in and out of favor. But in recent years, she's been seeing a bit of a resurgence, not just because of her novels, but also the school of philosophy they communicate. So a number of prominent conservative politicians, including both our current president and Speaker of the House, consider Rand an important influence. She's long been the hero of libertarians, especially. And in recent years, the alt-right is filled with a lot of Ayn Rand fanboys. But it's not just folks politically on the right. Tech entrepreneurs have um, long been have been highly influenced by her as well. So Steve Jobs of Apple, Peter Thiel of PayPal and many other ventures here in Silicon Valley, Uber's founder, Travis Kalanick, all report to be influenced by Ayn Rand. Now, at the core of her thought is the idea that man is an island. In her words, these are them, My philosophy, which she calls objectivism, holds that man, every man, is an end in himself, not the means to the ends of others. He must exist for his own sake, neither sacrificing himself to others nor sacrificing others to himself. The pursuit of his own rational self-interest and of his own happiness is the highest moral purpose of his life. So I recently came upon a book on the ethics of Rand's objectivism at the library, at Berkeley Library. I was looking up books actually for today's teaching on topics like altruism and generosity, but then this other book in the same section, the title just jumped out at me, In Defense of Selfishness. Okay, and this is by a guy who's a philosopher who is like of the school of objectivism, who's basically making a moral case for why self-interest is morally good, okay? Now, I'm not bringing this all up because I think that most of us are Randian disciples or that we should be. I'm actually assuming that's not the case. We live here in Berkeley. (laughs) And also, this is a Jesus-centered community of faith. I mean, you don't have to know much about Jesus, to know that what he was into seems pretty counter to the teaching of Ayn Rand. I mean, he was about going the extra mile, giving someone not just your shirt, but your cloak. If you wanted to take a lead, then you should be taking the role of servant. Rand herself was not a fan of any of that. And she, she, made, she was quite clear uh, that she was not a fan of Jesus or the altruism that she believed that he represented. But even if we're not Randian followers, all of us are continually pressured to consider our own self-interest and how much it should play a role in how we live, right? I mean, we all face pressures to achieve, to find professional vocational success, to achieve some sort of financial security and self-stability. And let's be honest, living in the Bay Area, that is not an easy thing to do right? And those pressures are held in a lot of tension with the needs around us that we're aware of, the needs that we might feel called to help meet, right? But we're not always clear how much should we take responsibility for the things going on around us, for the, for the great need. How much self-concern is selfishness, When does our concern for others, our altruism, our generosity, actually become unwise, counterproductive? We're in a teaching series this Lent that I'm calling Character Matters. And so today, I thought we'd take some time to do some reflection on our own relationship to self-interest and to the interest of others, considering the character traits of altruism, generosity, what role are they supposed to play in our character? What's helpful in today's time and moment? Because truthfully, I think this topic impacts more than our politics, more than our businesses, our financial bottom lines. It impacts our capacity to engage in the activity of God, to extend blessing and care to the world around us. So today, we're going to look at a story from the life of Jesus in which I'm hoping Jesus might actually give us some helpful and perhaps even surprising thoughts on how to tackle these questions. So this story comes from late in the life of Jesus. I do have handouts if they're of interest to you. Feel free to use them if they are. If not, no worries. Um, So you can follow along. All right? So this uh, the story is from Mark. And it comes in the last week of Jesus' life, as Mark tells the story. He's already entered Jerusalem, and now he's there doing his last days of teaching. Okay, And this here, we're going to start with Mark 12:38. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. And many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. And then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. All right, so we have in this passage a story with three parts. They're clearly connected. But I think as often happens when we look at things in the Bible, sometimes when you zoom in too close, you actually miss what's right outside the frame, right? The thing outside the frame is sometimes actually the key for understanding what's in the middle of the shot. You with me? Okay, many of you have heard these paragraphs, but not necessarily put together in their context, right? Particularly the middle paragraph, the story of the widow, right, is often a focus of the shot. But there's these surrounding pieces that are often outside the frame. Today we're going to take a look at how each of these three parts might be connected and what they might tell us about what this story is really about, Okay. So I'm just going to walk us through these three sections. First one, I call part one, Beware of the Scribes. Okay, beware of the Scribes. This is the first paragraph, right? Where Jesus is saying, Okay, beware of these Scribes. And he goes on about them. Who is he talking about? Well, the Scribes are the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. But they also hold in this religious government state significant political power. In Israel... It's one and the same. Religious power and political power are held by these folks. They are the people of power. They are the people of prominence and privilege. They hold the respect of the people. They are well thought of, and they like that, right? Jesus is acutely aware of the self-interest of the scribes. These guys care about how they look. They dress with these long robes that remind people everywhere they go that they are the prominent people of power. All the places they go, they receive special accommodation. Every banquet they attend, every trip to the marketplace is an opportunity to remind the community that these are the folks with power and strength. These are their leaders. It's also an opportunity to stroke the ego of these scribes. But the privilege they enjoy, there is a dark side to it. It's not just a like, oh, good for you. You did a good job. You deserve everything you get. It's not simply neutral. The self-interest is fed by an unjust system that these scribes benefit from and uphold. And nowhere is this more evident than in their relationship to the most marginalized people of their society, the widows. So who are the widows? Well, widows represent, like I said, the most vulnerable people in their culture. It's a patriarchal culture. Women are provided for by being attached to property-owning men, either their fathers when they're young or their husbands. For those who have lost their husbands, they have no means for self-provision or to provide for their children. And God makes it clear early in the story that the Bible tells throughout the ark of the Bible that God deeply cares about these widows and the children that have lost their fathers. See, the, the words are widows and orphans, or widows and fatherless, the ones who have no fathers to provide for them. Right? He cares deeply about these vulnerable ones but by the time jesus comes along the system that has been set up in israel the way of caring for the widows and orphans that they were instructed to do has become problematic so if a widow was fortunate enough to have an estate the scribes stepped in as trustees for the estate Because widows were not legally allowed to own property. So the way they would handle that is the scribes would come in and they would put their name on the deed. As a benefactor, they would be the trustee for the estate. And they would take a percentage of the estate each year for providing that service. So note, they did not provide any maintenance for the estate. They were not actually assisting the women in any way. They were just allowing them to live on their property, right? Over the years, more and more of the estate would become theirs. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying these scribes are devouring the estates of the widows. They are fleecing the widows instead of protecting them. Instead of caring for them, all while maintaining this appearance of being benevolent benefactors, right? And Jesus is disgusted by it. He finds it sickening, maddening. And he makes clear that God will hold these leaders accountable for this reprehensible distortion of their duty. They will receive the greater condemnation, he says. I would not want that condemnation (laughs) spoken of myself from Jesus. Beware of the scribes. We go to part two, the second paragraph. After delivering that harsh word about the scribes, he's like, let's go into the temple. And he takes them into the temple where the offering boxes are set out. Okay, this was like the outer courtyard of the temple. The temple had multiple courtyards different people could go into. But this in the outer courtyard is where like the most people can go. And there would be basically like what we have, an offering box, except probably multiple ones, and they would be much bigger. Because you got to remember, all right, there's no Venmo in these days. There's no PayPal. There's no check writing. I don't think even, uh, like, paper currency. We're talking coinage. That is how you give to the treasury, right? And so there's, it's noisy. It's like a public act. There's, like, a big thing for you to dump all your coins in. And everyone can hear it because it's loud, right? It's, it's out in public. People know. Look at these rich guys. They come with their bags and bags and bags of coin, and they dump them in, and it is loud, right? And they must, they must be doing well. Everyone knows it. And I love the idea of Jesus just, just parking himself back there with a the box, just, uh-huh, just watching who's coming in, kind of a smirk on his face. Okay, what are you going to put in? What you going to put in? Right, you you kind of give him under. Like if he was back there, like what do you do? You feel a little like, is this okay, or or like whatever? I don't even care what you think, Jesus. What would your response be? So he's watching these these rich people, these privileged, come with their big halls, and then in comes the widow, right? The epitome of marginalization, and she takes out these two tiny coins, and he knows what they are because he can hear them clink clink these two little half pennies and jesus is struck by it so much so that he calls his friends to him to show them what's happened and here's what's interesting i just learned this week from a preaching friend of mine that there are actually two ways that scholars think you can interpret jesus's comments here but most people are only aware of the first Okay, I'm guessing the first interpretation you have heard, especially if you've heard this story talked about in church before. And this interpretation says, and you can fill in the blanks here if you want, Jesus is praising the faithfulness of the widow that's demonstrated by her gift, right? Jesus is praising the faithfulness of the widow, He's making a comment about how much God values her faith and her sacrificial generosity to give everything she has, even 100% of her assets. She has set her own self-interest completely aside. And in doing so, she's setting an example for us to follow, to give abundantly, sacrificially, recognizing that ultimately everything we have comes from God and we can trust God with our resources. Does that sound familiar? It is by a lot of scholars and preachers a favored interpretation. This is called the widow's might. Sometimes you'll hear it called. You preach the widow's might, and you call folks to consider equally radical forms of selflessness. I mean, the widow is like the antithesis to Ayn Rand, right? When you consider this story on its own, just this little paragraph, when this is the only thing in the shot, that reading makes total sense. When you zoom out a little more, I think there's more to consider. The second option to interpret Jesus' comments is not actually that they are a word primarily of praise, but ultimately that they are a word of lament. Option two is that Jesus is lamenting the gift of the widow, a gift given Sure, in faith and hope in God, which is admirable and to be be admired, and maybe even followed, but ultimately given to a system that is set up to exploit and oppress her. A system that has told her that faithfulness to God means giving up the very last penny she has to feed herself or her children to the people who claim to be God's appointed, but again and again have failed her, and they will fail her. They will not use these two pennies in her interest. She's letting go of self-interest, but those who should have her interests in mind are only concerned with themselves. And Jesus laments the corruption of the system that brings oppression and exploitation of the vulnerable rather than the protection and care of them. That's an interesting way to read it, right? I'm not saying that there's not still something to be admired, or even followed. These both can be true in a sense. It's sure, it's 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 not a bad thing if we feel called to be sacrificially giving on a, on some state, on some level. But to who? Giving to what? I think here Jesus is very, very grieved that the system would would take what she is offering earnestly to God and use it to oppress her. And this interpretation sees this incident at the offering box as being this important pivot between the other two moments of the story, what was outside the frame, right? First we had Jesus' warning about the corrupt leadership in Israel and the system that upholds it. And then we have the final paragraph we looked at the beginning of Mark thirteen a lot of people don 't put these th- forget that these two are connected because it 's like oh it 's a new chapter. we can stop, but they 're actually all the same it 's one story, okay You go into Mark thirteen and we enter part three it 's all coming down as they leave the temple treasury. The next piece is Jesus' followers commenting on the magnificence of the temple building. How huge these stones are. They seem impenetrable. They represent wealth and power. They carry the weight of history. Jesus' followers are connected with this awe, the magnitude of what has happened there and the, the big system that has been built up to support it. Have you ever visited a place where you felt that kind of awe. Maybe you went to Washington, D.C. Maybe you went to the White House or the Lincoln Memorial or the Mall. Maybe you went somewhere, you know, to New York, the Empire State Building, Wall Street, the United Nations. Maybe you've gone to the Vatican in Italy. There's certain places that carry so much history and weight that we feel that just to be in the space, Right? And that's what these guys are feeling. And it's like the final straw for Jesus. It's like his friends just don't get what he's been trying to say. And so Jesus like lets loose. He goes on a preaching tirade. Okay, if you want to later look at the rest of chapter 13, it's intense. He is in full-on prophet of doom mode. And he is saying this system is corrupt. It's not doing what it was made to do. Yes, of course, Jesus wants people to share their resources, give out of their abundance so everyone has enough, so they can be a just, generous community. But that's not happening. The system has been broken. It's enabling the self-interest of the powerful few, no longer serving the interests of the larger community. And so Jesus says, it's all going to come down. It's got to come down. These unjust systems are counter to the way of God. A God that is community within God's self. A God that created people not to be islands, but to share in the magnificence of loving relationship. A God that is ever-giving of God's self to the benefit of creation out of care and compassion and generosity. A God that desires God's children to know they are beloved so much so that God entered the pain of their humanity to be in it with them, in love, even suffering as they suffer, so they may find love and connection even in the darkness. That God cannot endure injustice. That God cannot endure exploitation. It cannot partner with oppression. And so it must bring the end of it. It must bring down the unjust systems these temples of inequality ultimately cannot stand, for they are counter to the will of this God. Now what I think about is interesting about this. Ayn Rand, she saw firsthand the corruption, the destructive nature of Soviet communism. Her response to that was then to withdraw from the collective, to say, you know what, the system is broken, so let's get rid of these kinds of systems altogether. Let's have as little power over over us as possible. In this lament of the system's corruption that Jesus is expressing, the prophetic vision of it coming down, in a sense, he agrees on this point with Ayn Rand. Human systems are corruptible. Human systems are fallible. Human systems can become very unjust. But what Rand sees as fixed and unchangeable, Jesus sees as flawed but hopeful. Jesus comes into the mess, calls it out, and then says, let's make this better. Yes, humans have the capacity to be selfish. They also have the capacity to be empathetic. And cooperative. Yes. They have the capacity to be cruel. They also have the capacity to be kind. So Jesus doesn't come to abolish the community of God. Start over. He came to reform it. He's bringing his followers into this. So they can say, let's make this better together. He, calls, he came to call faith community back to what it was meant to be. So. So. What are our invitations in light of all of this? I think there's a few, and that's where we're going to end. Invitation one. I think we're invited to consider consider your own balance of self-interest versus the interest of others in regards to your time, your energy, and your money. Consider your your own balance of self-interest versus the interest of others in regards to time, energy, and money. Now, I'm going to be just right up front with you. I am not going to tell you what percentage of your income you should be giving away. If you're waiting for that, it's not coming. I do think the consistent teaching of Scripture from beginning to end— clearly calls us to an open-handedness with material possessions. That is true. It calls us to share abundantly, to make offerings out of gratitude and recognition of God's generosity with us, for those who have abundance, to share with those who have need, recognizing at any given time the tables may turn. We may be the ones in need. And so many people find the Old Testament idea of a tithe or a 10%, a helpful framework to start from. But if you're in the place of the widow that might not actually be an appropriate thing to do. If you're paying rent in the Bay Area, I'm not sure it's feasible. I'm not saying in terms of time and energy. I'm not going to say everyone needs to show up at every event that Haven or any other organization you're involved in is having, no matter how important the work. I think there's wisdom in taking Sabbaths, a regular rhythm or rest, time of renewal alongside the work. Burning ourselves out, just putting it all in, doesn't serve anyone. So I'm not here to prescribe a formula of balance for you in terms of your time, energy, or money. But what I can do is invite all of us into an ongoing conversation we can be having with Jesus and one another about the ways our self-concern might limit our capacity to participate more fully in the work of community building and generosity extending that God's in- inviting us into, it's real. The circumstances of our life are going to change from season to season, right? Our bottom lines change, the sizes of our families change, our energy levels change. That's true. That's real. So this is something we need to be continually revisiting with the Spirit throughout the varying seasons of our lives, with, in dialogue with people we love and trust, asking afresh, what is God inviting me into? In this season, how can I best cooperate with God using the time, energy, and money I have to be a part of God's activity in the world? So that's invitation one. Consider our own balance of self-interest versus the interest of others. Invitation two is a collective invitation. As a church, we are to consider the ways we use the resources entrusted to us to bring life to our community. Consider the ways we use the resources entrusted to us to bring life to our community. Okay, there's a warning here in this, in this scripture, right? I don't know if you feel it. I feel it personally as a faith leader. To be wary of our own temptation towards self-interest. There's a reason so many people are mistrusting or hurt by the church. Because sadly, churches at times, like the religious community Jesus was critiquing, have been very exploitive. I mean, how many times has this very text been preached, apart from its context, in ways that are exploitive? Encouraging people to give till it hurts, just like the widow, be like her without recognizing the irony that in preaching this story of the widow as a call to action, at times, faith leaders have actually become what Jesus is lamenting. Right? That's a problem. Again, it's not about walking away and saying, okay, let's divest from this whole faith community endeavor altogether, Ayn Rand style. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is calling us to do better with our resources, particularly resources that are given unto the work of God. That so we are to hold that as a solemn duty and be very careful about how we proceed with it, to be open, transparent, thoughtful, wise stewards of all that, are, that we've been entrusted with, to care for the interests of the community. One of the reasons I personally think this move to two services a month was a move in alignment with this kind of goal is that it's a recognition that our resources can do more if they're concentrated very efficiently. Okay, so before a large percentage of our resources went into these Sunday gatherings, the room rental, the bagels, the coffee, the childcare help, and whether we had 12 people show up or 40, the cost was the same, right? By concentrating these gatherings to a time that more of us can be here together, we also freed up these resources to invest in what's happening in the other room, right? We could hire Jill, right? Over a third of our church is under the age of 12. Aren't they as deserving of the opportunity to grow in safe, spiritual, diverse, Jesus-centered community as we are, right? But they don't have any income to contribute. They can't pay for the service. Isn't it worth it for our community to share what we have resource-wise, with them. Isn't that what the one who said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Isn't that what he would have us do? These are the kinds of questions we should be asking. And here's the deal, guys. Whether you've been here a while, you come every once in a while, this is your first time, all of you are stakeholders in this. This thing isn't happening because some like, outside funders are putting all this money in and telling us what to do. This is it. This is the, this is, we all have a stake, right? The people in this room are the ones who are making it happen, and the ones who are benefiting. Okay? So I invite you in this season to be considering specific ways the Spirit might be inviting you to hold a stake. Is God inviting you to participate financially in this endeavor for the first time or in a new way? Is God inviting you to consider becoming a member? Taking a step to be more officially aligned with the project of Haven. If you're interested in what that even looks like, it starts with a conversation, a little uh, brunch at my house where we just talk about kind of what that even means in our community. And if you're interested in that, I have a, a thing in the back you can sign up, uh, and we'll, we'll figure out a time we could do that. Is God inviting you to pray specifically for the wisdom and the work of our board and our pastoral staff, that we would be wise stewards, that God would speak to us about how to use our resources going forward. Might the spirit be inviting you at some point to serve on our board? Our board's just a group, essentially, of Haven members who have...